to this day and this time. Looking forward to our services tomorrow when we gather together and again focus on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When God became a man. And this morning in our worship, Lord, we pray that you will come to us. That you will abide with us. That, Lord, you will be God with us in the midst of our worship. That we will worship you in spirit and in truth and your heart will be pleased. Open our minds that we might behold wondrous things from your law and be transformed. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray and the people of God said, Amen. Amen. If you're looking back to a historical event and sev several authors are uh, writing about it, you're going to get slightly different views. For instance, if you were to study the Revolutionary War and pick up the Pulitzer Prize winning book by David McCullough on John Adams, you would find much about the Revolutionary War, but you would see it through the eyes of Adams, through the eyes of McCullough and also through the eyes of Adams. Studying that same Revolutionary War, if you pick up the book by Walter Isaacson on Ben Franklin, again, you have a slightly different view. Now from the sage of the Revolutionary War through Isaacson from Franklin. And a third book you might pick up would be Washington, A Life by Ron Chernow. And here again, studying some of the same events and some of the same battles, but through the eyes of another. And then through all of these perspectives, all of these portraits, you get a full-orbed view of what really happened. Well, that sounds very similar to what you and I have in the gospel account of Jesus Christ. There are four evangelists who write about Jesus all from a different perspective. Some who walked with him, some who knew him from a distance, and many relying on the writings, the first-hand writings of others. It's the same, but it's different. It's the same in the sense that you've got different writers looking at the same event and seeing different perspectives. But of course with the Gospels you have the same author, don't you? You have the Holy Spirit. Yet the Holy Spirit does not override the personalities of the human authors. Which makes it amazingly unique. Miraculously so. To come out without errors and to blend together these different views is indeed the work of the Holy Spirit. So when you study Matthew's account, you see that he focuses a little more on Joseph and a little more on the Magi and fleeing to Egypt. And uh, some of his sources indeed could have been firsthand as he walked with the Lord. Luke's account, however, probably was taken from Mary. He has the scripture that talks about what happened to Elizabeth and then Mary visiting Elizabeth and, and the, the John the Baptist being born. And, and then chapter 2, Mary pondering all these things in her heart. It seems like Luke's account probably is based on Mary's first-hand account. And you might even say John does the same thing because John, the apostle John, later becomes 
the uh, caretaker of Mary after Christ dies. Remember on the cross, Jesus said to John, He's, she's now your mother, and history tells us that indeed he took care of Mary in her later years. So maybe much of what he writes about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us could have even come through Mary, although all inspired by the Holy Spirit. But where's Jesus' account? <laughs> We've got the account of all of these, the account of all of these other writers, but where is the account from the lips of Christ? You say, Pastor, babies don't give an account of their birth. This one did. And it's found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open to Hebrews chapter 10. And I have this amazing statement on the screen from that wonderful chapter. It says, when Christ came into the world, he said. Think about that for a moment. What other baby came into the world speaking? Hey, we had three babies born last night at Sparrow. And Doc, you got to go see this one. He's a weird one. He's talking. He told us why he came into the world. He's got a whole plan. Uh, this is an amazing... No, that just doesn't happen. But when Christ came into the world, he was talking. He said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. And he's now making a reference to the Old Testament uh, animal sacrifices, which in the book of Hebrews, that's the old covenant passing away. The new covenant is better and replacing it with the uh, sacrifice of Christ himself. Uh, sacrifice and offering is not what you desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So when we come to this portion of scripture, we see that here is the Christmas story from the lips of Jesus. I'm not trying to in any way put down the other stories. They're all inspired. They're all of God. But here's the story from Jesus in Hebrews chapter 10. So what did he say when this baby came into the world? Well, first of all, he knew that he was coming. Again, this could not be said of any other child. He came into the world with a purpose. Now, often parents have a purpose for their children. Unfortunately so. <laughs> they are driven to force their kids to do something that maybe the kids don't want to do. I think it's great when a parent has a purpose to train up a child in the way they should go, to love them and nourish them and care for them, but to develop their gifts and help them to find out what they are supposed to do. But the child doesn't come into the world with a specific purpose. That is the one that the child knows. Later they might find their purpose, but Jesus is different. A baby born knowing exactly what he's going to do. Now remember, this is a supernatural birth. We often talk about the virgin birth, and that's a bit of a misnomer. The birth itself was extremely normal. The conception was supernatural. Keep that in mind. So when Mary gave birth to Christ, it was just as normal as any other mother delivering her child. But it was a virgin conception that indeed is miraculous. You say, how did it happen? God is God. 
if he's not God, then we've got problems. And the miracles cannot be explained. But if he is the Lord of the universe who created all things, this is no big deal for God. And indeed, it is a big deal for us when we see him display his mysterious power. So that's what it says in Hebrews. If you look in your Bibles, Hebrews 10, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased, although you required them. He required them for a period of time, but they are limited, and they do not ultimately satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God. We need an infinite offering, not a temporary one, and that's why they are unpleasing. Verse 7, then he said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. First he says, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor will you please with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So he knew he was coming. He came into this world and God prepared a body. The Lord who created each body, the one who designed us all and made us in his image, sends his exact representation and likeness in the baby born in Bethlehem. A unique, not a necessarily a unique body for Christ. It is completely human, but it is unique that it is without sin. Created by God and prepared for a definite purpose. And what is the purpose? He came to do the Father's will. That's mentioned twice in this section. Here I am. I have come to do your will. By the way, this is a quotation from Psalm 40. Written hundreds of years before Jesus is ever born. This is one of the messianic psalms that explains that Messiah is coming and has maybe in a, in a bit of a mysterious way, declares what Messiah will do and accomplish. And here it says, you've prepared a body and I have come to do your will. That was the ever-present purpose in the heart of Jesus Christ, to do the will of God. He says in John chapter 4, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. You and I have other things that fuel our fire, other things that drive us to accomplishment and fill our days with activity. But for Jesus, it was simply this. What is the will of God? And the will of God for Christ, this section of Scripture makes it plain, is to sacrifice his body. That's what verse 10 says. So he prepares a body, verse 5, to be sacrificed, verse 10, the will of God is to become the new sacrifice. It's in contrast to the ones that were merely temporary. Christ gives 
a sacrifice that is eternal. It is once for all. So if you ever want to join the manger with the cross, here's a great passage to do it. Christ came into the world to die. That was his purpose. God's will is for Jesus Christ to be the savior of the world. I love the songs of Christmas. I think it's easy for us merely to slide into a kind of a sentimental attitude and never rise above that. I don't mind a little bit of this sentimentality. Uh, that's okay. The tradition that takes us back over the years and connects us with people we love. But, but don't let your celebration of Christmas stay on a mere sentimental level. It must go beyond that. The scriptures demand it. And that's where the real joy is to be found. Christ came into this world as a baby. Yes, that's sweet. How amazing he was born in a manger. How very God of God to bring his son into the world in poverty that he might reach the poor. And have kings, or at least representatives, the king makers, bowing before him with gifts so he could reach the rich. How very God of God to love all humanity. But don't stop there. It's not the beautiful story of the baby born in Bethlehem and then let's give our gifts and have fun. It's the baby born to die. The baby born to save. In fact, every portion of scripture that talks about the coming of Christ is unashamedly saying his name is Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Mary rejoices in her magnificat. My savior has come. Zechariah says the same thing. He will be a horn of salvation coming from the house of my servant David to save us all. That's why he has come. You and I have a sin problem. And it is fatal. You, you and I have a sin problem and the wages of sin is death. Jesus, out of love, sent from the Father, comes to save us now. And John 3, 16, that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, says in the very next verse, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but, the world that, the, but that the world through him might be saved. He knew his purpose. It was to do the will of God. And that purpose was to sacrifice the body that had been prepared for him. By the way, if you're an astute Bible student, you'll go back to Psalm 40 and read that portion of Scripture and say, wait a minute, Pastor, there seems to be a real uh, discrepancy here. For it says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Instead of a body you have prepared. The difference is in two things. Number one, in the translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek. And number two, in idioms that are used that mean the same thing. So an idiom is a picture that uh, it's a way of speaking in a culture or language that uses pictures to reveal truth. 
This idiom simply attaches something from the body to represent the body. So to say the ears or the hands, those represent the entire body. You're saying the same thing with merely different words. Poets do it all the time. And the book of Psalms is in the genre of poetry. I've heard people say, ah, there's another example that the Bible is filled with errors. No, think. Be educated in the truth of Scripture. Don't grasp what you think to be a mere error and find out that the embarrassment is with you. Because this is simply the way the Hebrews would speak. So a body is prepared for Christ. God is a spirit. He has no body, but God took on a body for this mission to do the almighty will of God. So that's what he said. When he said that he came into the world and had something to say, this was it. He knew why he was coming. Secondly, he was delighted to come. He was filled with joy. Now Christmas is to to be a time of joy, right? Where do you find joy at Christmas? Well, hopefully you find it just about everywhere. You see it in the eyes of kids, in the excitement on Christmas morning. You see the, the joy in the atmosphere, the songs we sing, the giving that takes place. Even some people who don't claim to be religious <laughs> realize that giving is what life is all about. It is better to give than it is to receive. The joy in the songs where Elizabeth and Mary and Zacharias and Simeon, the angels, the shepherds, there's joy in all of this. And Isaac, uh, and Isaac Watts took uh, Psalm 90 and put it into words and we sing joy to the world. The Lord is come. There is great joy, but you know where the greatest joy is? It's in Jesus himself. Here's Psalm 40, verse 8. The word desire is used in Hebrew, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, but it says, I delight to do your will. Your law is written in my heart. In Hebrews chapter 12, if you were to go over a couple chapters, you would read in verse 2, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. So there was a sense of delight and joy when Jesus left the glories of heaven coming down to the earth he created. To lay aside all of his pri privileges, his prerogatives, as God the eternal son. He always existed, that's why he could say something before he was born. He was willing to take on human form and to live in poverty and to end his life with a horrible death. In fact, this is exactly what Hebrews, uh, what Philippians says, same thing that is recorded in Hebrews. Even though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be maintained, something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, 
even death on a cross. He was delighted to do all of that. Why? Because he would see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He would see what his death would accomplish and he would be fulfilled. That's Isaiah 53. So he's delighted to come. You know, if you're an employer, you hire people to do a job. And sometimes they do it, but they do it reluctantly. And isn't that a pain? I mean, you are doing all you can, hopefully, to uh, create a business that generates income for other families. You would think there would be some appreciation. But when you give them a task to do, they groan and complain. They do it, but reluctantly. This is clear among children who don't realize that their very existence, humanly speaking, is dependent upon the love of their parents and their parents' provision. And the parents ask them to do something, and they'll do it. I guess if it's got to be done, I'll do it. If someone has to do it, I'll do it. But Jesus said, I'll do it with joy. I'll die. I'll gladly give my life. It's no wonder that the angels sing with joyful hearts if Messiah himself comes to this earth with great joy in his soul. So notice when Jesus describes his birth, he talks about divine purpose and he talks about divine pleasure. It's a delight to come. Thirdly, as I look at this portion of scripture... I notice that Jesus continues to come. He not only knew why he was coming and delighted to do so, but he continues to come. Now you might miss this, but as you look at Hebrews chapter 10, it's definitely there. It's also in Psalm 40, so clearly. Then he said, verse 7, Here I am. The old King James has in the volume of the book, it is written of me. The, the NIV says, it is written about me in the scroll. Very significant. These prophecies written about Christ hundreds of years before they take place are solid evidence to the authority, to the integrity, to the divine nature of the Bible. But he says, here I am. Which is the same language, if you would go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, when Moses, standing at the burning bush, heard God speak from the bush. And when Moses said, what is your name? The bush, God responding, said, I am. I am that I am. You say, what is that? That is the language of continual existence and presence. I am that I am. We learn from other portions of Scripture, he always has been, he always will be, and after all, if he is God, there is no other way it can be. I am that I am. Now, Jesus really shook things up when he came to the world, and especially among his own countrymen, the Jews, 
And because he said things like, I and my father are one, I've come from heaven to do his will. And one time, John 8 tells us that Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you want to get a group of Orthodox Jews upset, you just tell them you're God. And that's what he did. He was telling the truth, but it upset them. Before Abraham existed, how can you live before Abraham when you're not even 30 years old? Before Abraham was, I am. And then he punctuated that statement throughout the Gospel of John with, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate that opens up into heaven. I am the good shepherd who dies for the sheep. I am, I am, I am. And now in Hebrews, he says, I know it's written of me in the volume of the book. Here I am. It is in the present tense, meaning this, I have come and I never intend to leave. So we celebrate the baby born 2,000 years ago in a, in a Bethlehem stable, most likely, laid in a manger. We celebrate that baby coming then, but he still comes today. He comes through the Holy Spirit every time someone puts their faith and trust in Christ. The meaning is this, I have come and I never intend to leave. And I keep coming into every heart that opens up its doors to me. Edmund Clowney was the former president of Westminster Seminary, a wonderful biblical scholar. Someone once said to him, I, I have a problem with your Christianity. It happened so long ago, 2,000 years ago. If Christ had only been born recently, then maybe I could believe it. Maybe things would be different. President Clowney said to him, those events that happened so long ago have not ceased to be current. Rather, the Lord Jesus Christ who came then comes again and again and again through the person of the Holy Spirit to bring the accomplishment of salvation to every believing individual. He keeps coming. Here I am and always will be. This is what gives life to the Christmas message. It's not something that is one and done. We sang just a moment ago from a little town of Bethlehem. Hear these words. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming. But in this world of sin where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in, comes again, and comes again. If you're born again, Christ has come again into your soul, and there he lives, and forever he says, here I am, fulfilling the prophecies written hundreds of years ago. And there's one final thing I notice from this portion of Scripture, and it's simply this. When you talk about the old sacrifices 
that are not pleasing, that are no longer required, that had their day, fulfilled their temporary purpose, and then you contrast that with the eternal sacrifice of a body prepared and a body sacrificed, you realize this, Jesus is the only one who could pay for our sins. He is the only one, the God-man. How miraculous. How amazing. Don't focus on one at the expense of the other. Hold them both in heart. You say, but it's too big for me to comprehend. Amen. Because if your puny brain could comprehend this amazing miracle of God and man together, we're in trouble. You see, it goes against reason. No, merely above yours. Again, puny reason. Divine reason, infinite reason, God-like reason is far above you and me. It's far above the collective you and me throughout all the ages of the wisest who have ever lived. Only Jesus could pay for your sins. And he has. He has. That's Christmas too. A body prepared and a body sacrificed. There's a true story many years ago of a young man who was a soldier in the Russian army. Because the young man's father was a friend of Tsar Nicholas I, this young man was given a very responsible post. He was the paymaster in one of the barracks, responsible to give the right amount of money and distribute it each month to every soldier. But this young man had a problem. His character wasn't up to the responsibility. He liked to gamble. So he gambled his small fortune away and then started gambling the government's money and kept losing and kept losing. He then heard that a representative from the Tsar was going to be coming around to the different barracks to check the books. It was the day of accountability. He knew he was in trouble. That evening he got all the books together and added up what money he had left over and how much money he owed. And the debt was so great, there was no hope of paying it. He was ruined and he would be disgraced. His father would be disgraced as well. So the young man determined to take his life. He pulled out his revolver, placed it on the table before him, then wrote a summation of all his misdeeds, a confession, if you will, and at the bottom of the ledger wrote these words, a great debt, who can pay? He determined that he would kill himself at midnight. But he got drowsy and fell asleep. The person who was going to come around to the barracks to check the ledgers came a bit early or late at night. I guess he was supposed to come the next day, but he actually came late at night. And it wasn't just a representative of the Tsar. It happened to be Tsar Nicholas I himself. He noticed a light on in this particular room, went in to see who was there and saw the young man sleeping. Noticed the young man the son of his friend, and then noticed the ledger 
and his confession written. After reading his confession and all that he had done with government funds, the Tsar was about to wake him up and arrest him until he saw at the very bottom a great debt, who will pay? And in a moment of tender mercy, the Tsar wrote one word at the bottom of that page, didn't wake up the man, didn't arrest him, but left. The man was awakened sometime early in the morning, realizing he had overslept, grabbed the gun, was about ready to take his life when his eyes fastened on the page. And after that question he had written, a great debt who will pay, one word was written, Nicholas. The man wasn't sure that maybe it was a fraud, so he went to his files and found an autograph from the Tsar himself, checked it out. Indeed, it was the Tsar's name. And early that morning, all the money came, the exact amount came, to pay the debt, and he was free. That's a true story, by the way. Here's a true story. You and I have a great debt we cannot pay. We're in trouble. We're ruined. We're disgraced. We're lost. And Jesus sees that debt and there's one name written at the bottom. The only one who could pay the debt. The only one who could cleanse the deed. Jesus writes his name in his own blood, so that we might be forever saved. If you ask me what Christmas is, this is what I say. A body prepared and a body sacrificed for us. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for the words of Christ Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful exposition in Hebrews 10 of Psalm 40. Thank you for the miraculous angles in this story, the events that cannot be humanly explained, well documented through the ages, better than any other historical event. And here we are, Lord, face to face with your amazing love. I pray that all of us, this Christmas Day, or just this Christmas Sunday, just before we celebrate Christmas Day, might find ourselves saying, Lord Jesus, I trust the name that is signed my debt away. Give us joy and give us purpose and let us cling to your presence in Jesus' name, amen.